0: The key is not to focus on procedures, but focus on organs and disease processes. It's not a prostate artery embolization. It's lots lower urinary tract syndrome, and the associated things in the prostate bed. I think if you're going to deal with the procedure, it's really the disease that you're treating and the patient's concern about that disease. So that's the way you should be focused on your learning process as you go through medical school residency and beyond.
1: Welcome to the second season of The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR.
2: I'm Ben Rausch, a fourth year medical student at Western Michigan University, Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine.
1: And I'm Jag Sandhu, and doing a research year uh, with the Interventional Radiology Department at Jackson Memorial Hospital and the New University of Miami.
2: We work with a great team of students, residents, and attendings using the power of podcasts to explore topics in interventional radiology. As the hosts of today's episode, we hope you find it both educational and enjoyable.
1: We're very excited to introduce this next episode of The Sound of IR, where we sit down with Dr. Jogi Cherry and discuss the role of interventional radiologists in aortic disease, specifically abdominal aortic aneurysms.
2: Dr. Cherry completed medical school at University of Miami School of Medicine, a radiology residency at University of Chicago, and IR fellowship at UCLA and is the Interventional Radiology Program Director at Kaiser Permanente Los Angeles Medical Center. So Jag, as we did this interview at ISET uh, last month, I really enjoyed just the way that Dr. V approaches clinical IR. I think a lot of students or residents who've ever known Dr. V know uh, his passion for it, but it was great to, to sit down with him and, and actually have it on the podcast.
1: Yeah, definitely. I agree. Like, it was just the way that he kind of looked at aortic disease and kind of the whole picture of the patient. And uh, in the context of what the patient, how the patient wanted to approach the rest of their life, or like what they really enjoyed doing. And he would use a lot of that to kind of determine, like his uh, management and when to intervene. And I thought it was just really interesting to hear how like he approached it that way.
2: Yeah, exactly. And this was my experience with him uh, rotating there this last summer. Uh, I really like how he doesn't look at his patients as a 78 year old male, but he looks at him as a retired police officer with, you know, a wife and six kids and 12 grandkids who likes to go fishing or, you know, yeah. and I, I like how even in in the interview uh, he mentions that it's a, it's a good perspective to have to re- realize we're not just treating fluoroscopic imaging and, and an aorta, you know what I mean? We're, we're treating a patient
1: yeah definitely, and I think it's like really really good to kind of like remember that. I know like us like going through medical school, like you go in and you fit th- and that's like kind of your mentality going in, but you can sometimes forget um forget about that as you go through a lot of medical school, especially through third year, you kind of forget that aspect of like treating kind of like the human being like he's more than uh just like the seventy eight year old man uh that dr. v said, but he has a family or he has he has hobbies, things he still enjoys doing and wants to continue doing. And like putting all that in perspective, I think uh, really can lead to like better uh, care for the patient.
2: Absolutely. So, one idea that he brings up uh, that I know we've discussed and, and other students uh, have discussed on this podcast with other attendings is the idea that we're no longer the doctor's doctor, as people traditionally say in interventional radiology, but we're now becoming the patient's doctor. And uh, he mentions it in passing, but I really I really like that concept. And knowing that going into this episode, you can really see that or, or understand that as you listen to him talk.
1: Yeah, definitely. I completely agree.
2: And Jack, what did you think of his comments on the, the format and structure of the IR training?
1: You know, I thought it was uh, really interesting. And I liked how he Let's um, say kind of saying like right now it's still really early on, but the hope is for um, as these classes get filled up that like the residency will become a lot more integrated uh, than it actually is because he, he is right. Like his program is very integrated throughout all five years. I feel and you do a lot of a lot of clinical IR along with diagnostic throughout your training, like kind of mixed together. And I, I agreed with him when he said like that uh, that would probably be the optimal way to do the training versus kind of a lot of a lot of places just seem to be like three um, three years of diagnostic radiology followed by two heavy interventional radiology years.
2: Yeah, exactly. And you know, with everything he does with his residents taking call for the ICU and even their surgical interns, whether they're going into IR or just the, the surgical interns in general rotate on IR um, at Kaiser. And I like that for multiple reasons. One, for those going into IR, it just further integrates things. And two, it gives those surgery interns who are gonna be the referring doctors or the doctors collaborating with IR, a better view into how interventional radiologists, at least at Kaiser, approach clinical care.
1: Yeah, definitely. Like that's, that's another good point. Uh, being able to like work, work together with like your other colleagues from your intern year and just keeping that relationship throughout the next uh, five, six years. And it leads to like a better understanding of how different specialties uh, think about different problems or treat uh, treat like the same disease um, with different philosophies.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of people doing similar things at different programs, but it's great to just have him on the podcast to share his vision with with a broader audience in this form.
1: Yeah, definitely. And uh, And with that, Um, we'll dive into our interview with Dr. Jovi Vatican-Jerry.
2: Dr. Vatican-Jerry, thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Sure.
1: My
0: pleasure.
2: Yeah, we're excited to have you. So, for our listeners that don't know who you are or who haven't interacted with you before, can you give us a little bit of your background, how you became interested in interventional radiology and how you got to where you are now?
0: Sure. Yeah. So, I went to um, medical school at University of Miami, um, where the ISAB meeting is currently. And during that time, I was pretty sure I was going to be a surgeon, uh, uh, perhaps a subspecialist surgeon, but something surgical. And <clears throat> during my um, third year rotation on, on, on general surgery, on hepatobiliary surgery, I was noticing that patients were taking a long time to recover. They had postoperative complications, whether it be pneumonias, DVTs, uh, ileus, and they were having NG tubes and they were miserable. And then I had an uh, elderly gentleman in his late 80s, who had a Clatskin skin tumor, which is a biliary bile duct cancer, and the kind of the hilum. He underwent a transhepatic cholangiogram uh, and went home the next day as if nothing happened. Wow. So that kind of opened my eyes to this kind of minimally invasive approach where the, he was awake and uh, went home with really no change in his physiologic status. So that's when I started to look into it more. And during that time, Miami, Vascular, Miami Cardiac Vascular Institute was right around the corner. They were doing some great stuff with aortic interventions. At that around that time, Michael Dake had done some great stuff with thoracic aortic interventions and published in the New England Journal in 94 and ninety four, ninety eight, uh, kind of stent graft technology in aortic interventions. So all of that kind of led to my growing interest in that specialty. Uh, so I know you interviewed Chuck, He was one of the peop- one of the residents or fellows doing that intervention on that patient. So wow. that's where it, I know it's all full circle. <laughs> small world. Yeah, it is a small world, and so. all all full circle uh, as far as that comes. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where the interest began in uh, interventional radiology or minimum invasive medicine.
2: That's amazing.
0: Um,
1: Would you say, like, what interventionalists
0: um, would you say played a huge role in the beginning of your career as you uh, went into residency? Sure. So I I had, you know, great uh, researchers and kind of academicians in the field of interventional radiology when I was a resident, as Brian Fanaki was, you know, former... Uh, Run ran the SIR meeting, and uh, I had uh, John Lorenz, Tong Van Ha, Jeff Leaf, so many interventionalists who uh, you know trained me and kind of guided me through that process. Jordan Rosenblum, uh, uh, some neurointerventionalists as well, SoMo Jahidi. So I had a lot of people that I could kind of learn from, but there was also kind of exciting times in that era where. Riyadh Salem had presented at one of the Andrew clubs of some of the Y90s uh, things that were going on and his kind of early experience with that. So it was kind of an exciting time. I went to the Andrew clubs that uh, that were presented in in Chicago area. So those all had some influence on kind of my career.
2: That's and awesome. My trajectory. Yeah, so. You know it sounds like early on when you were uh, still in, in Miami in medical school mm-hmm. you saw this you know you saw the the endographs going on you saw this transbiliary uh, sort of um, I- interventions and then as you went into residency at that point you knew that that you were going to pursue these yeah procedures. I mean, I,
0: I went into radiology solely do interventional so that was the the goal yeah. uh, it wasn't yeah. to do diagnostics it was really to be a minimal invasive therapeutic specialist. That's
2: awesome.
1: And during your training, during your residency and
0: fellowship, were you able to still pursue like aortic interventions? Uh, so no, I did not. Uh, uh, I wasn't able to do aorta's kind of during my uh, residency or fellowship. I did pers- I did get to do a lot of uh, peripheral arterial interventions as a fellow mm-hmm. under the tutelage of Tom McNamara. In fact, that's the main reason I went to UCLA is to work with him as he was doing his own wound care clinic. He was seeing 30 patients in the office a week. Wow. He was admitting his own patients. We were doing thrombolysis on the floor, on um, the step-down unit in, in telemetry. Um, and so I was taking full care of his patients. And so I think that's when I kind of realized that's the way I wanted to practice. And to be honest with you, I want, that's why I went there. That's
2: amazing. So I, that's awesome. I,
0: went, yeah, I went from Florida to Chicago to L.A. really to work with him.
2: Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. You know, we've we've had several people on the podcast before talk about critical ischemia, and I feel like, and and peripheral arterial disease. I feel like that's a place like aortas where being a clinician is very important for your patients. Yeah, you
0: know, I I would say that. um for anything that we do, sure. we have to kind of comprehensively manage, and even a diverticulitis, what antibiotics they should be on, how long should the drain be in, just getting the, the products for the patient to take care of it at home, having them be able to contact you. Even something simple like that is very important, a biopsy and the ramifications of it, getting the results, repeating the biopsy if necessary, making sure you kind of see if the concordance with the imaging and the pathology and the markers mm-hmm. is there is also part of our role. So. Yeah, for aorta and CLI, it's certainly very critical, but it's also important in all aspects of Absolutely. what we do. So I think that's something that not every program is providing, but it's critical for our patients to get that kind of care.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, and it sounds like if you if you become a good clinician, even in a place where you don't do aortas or you don't do peripheral vascular, um, it probably makes it easier to start managing those patients as you learn those procedures. Yeah. Would you say that's correct?
0: I, I think you know if you kind of have an approach to any disease uh, I think you can succeed so the key is not to focus on procedures but focus on organs and disease processes yeah so if you're gonna do it's not a prostate artery embolization it's lots lower urinary tract syndrome and the associated things in the prostate bed mm-hmm. so then you have to kind of understand the neurogenic component the bladder component the outflow component what the medical therapies are for that that, that treatment and also the prostate cancer and the role of PSA etc so I think if you're going to deal with the procedure, it's really the disease that you're treating and the patient's concern about that disease. Mm-hmm. So that's the way you should be focused on your learning process as you go through medical school residency and beyond.
2: Absolutely. Okay. So, you know, you're we talking about disease-specific treatment. Um, for our, a lot of our listeners have never had much exposure to what the role of interventional radiology is or even endovascular mm-hmm. treatment is for aortic aneurysms. So for those of our listeners that don't know much about it, can you sort of give, give us the Reader's Digest version of what that disease is and sure. how endovascular treatment can help?
0: Yeah, so I think um, we'll talk about kind of abdominal aortic aneurysmal disease. So it's yeah. a, you know mostly seen in males and smokers, and, um, and it's, a, it's one of those life-threatening conditions where they rupture with an exceedingly high mortality. So we want to prevent rupture. So it's, uh, we want to screen them. We want to follow them and we want to repair it in a timely fashion. And the pendulum's really swung to an endovascular approach in the majority of these patients. We do ours percutaneous with local anesthesia and mild sedation. So that's kind of our algorithm. But to, the other thing is, these patients die of heart attacks and strokes. Mm-hmm. So it's really important that you put them on high-intensity statin therapy, they're on some type of antiplatelet, their blood pressure is well controlled to reduce those events.
2: Yeah.
1: Okay. And like when you decide that it's time for a patient to undergo an endovascular intervention for their aneurysm, what are some important things that you'd want to know imaging-wise or um, lab-wise with the patient in that uh, pre-procedure workout?
0: Sure. So, I mean, I kind of look at all their comorbid conditions. I'm looking at their functional status, how many stairs can they do or how far can they walk and what t- amount of time. Um, if that's an older patient, we do a kind of a frailty index to see sometimes their grip strength and how fast they can get out of the chair and walk to the door. Those kind of things give me some guidance of how mentally with it they are. Okay. So those are all kind of things that I'm looking at. I look at the, if they have an echocardiogram, I look at that to look at their, if they have any valvular disease. Um, do they have a history of CHF? I look at their medications, I look at their diabetes, make sure the A1Cs are okay. So those are all things I'm looking at. Okay. Then from a procedural standpoint, I'm looking at their anatomic candidacy for the intervention. We've expanded our role from just kind of infrarenal to kind of pararenal aortic disease with the uh, fenestrated endografts that are now available that we are utilizing. Um, so all those things come into my um, kind of my thought process. Are they a, a good uh, percutaneous candidate, meaning the com- femorals are relatively disease-free, are the, can I get my access device up? Meaning the sheets are fairly large size, up to 20 French. So will that iliac and femoral tolerate that? And most important, what is the quality of the, of the aorta below, the, where you're sealing? That means you need healthy, what I say is parallel aorta. Not a lot of thrombus, not a lot of calcium, and it can't be aneurysmal. You can't have a 32 millimeter aorta, and that's, that's already degenerated. So you want yeah. a healthy, mm-hmm. parallel, undiseased aorta, if at least 15 millimeters in general if you're going to use standard graphs yeah. so that's kind of the way I look at it so I kind of look at the global status of patient, look at the size and I quote them a risk of rupture and look at their other issues if they have uh, you know stage four lung cancer and their FEV1 is like less than 50% the DLCO is less than 50% I may not intervene on that patient yeah so it's very important to globally look at everything okay. and I think that's unfortunately something that's being lost in medicine in general yeah so everyone's gotten so subspecialized that they can't look at the patient as a whole.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: that's important when you're dealing with these different diseases, whether it be vascular disease or oncology.
2: Yeah, I really like that point. I know that's something you uh, mentioned in the last couple of days that I said. You know, as you, if you're looking at a patient's age and whether or not you intervene, you have got to look beyond that. You got to look at what kind of lung cancer they have. Mm-hmm. You know, what their markers are. Are they going to be uh, someone that therapy can prolong their life that's right. to allow them to not die from their cancer so that you can help them not die from their aneurysm so one question I know a lot of our a lot of our listeners have as well as you, you know you mentioned the landing space you mentioned you know a, a lot of these more technical terms mm-hmm. with uh, with uh, the, the, these endographs can you explain to, uh, to our listeners who have never seen one of these sort of what the steps are how you get in mm-hmm. where you end up deploying uh, different things and sure and we can go from there
0: so basically we're Primarily, access, accessing a right at the kind of femoral artery right around the hip joint. So we use Seldinger technique, um, which is kind of the standard thing for all intervention. Mm-hmm. So we get a needle in, get a wire up, we put a small sheath into the in, into the groin arteries, into the femoral arteries, and then we uh, deploy some sutures that enable us to go large. So uh, using the ProGlide device, um, which is FDA approved for this indication after uh, local anesthesia, we get the device, we get the sheets up, and we shoot a picture to see where the kidney arteries are. So once we find the renal arteries, we deploy the graft just right at the renal arteries, so that the fabric is right below the kidney arteries. Some will have a soup what's called a suprarenal stent, which is a bare stent that kind of tethers it in place. And others will have what's called infrarenal fixation, which is little barbs right below the kidney arteries okay. so that's kind of the key thing and it's like connecting a pant mm-hmm. so one of the pant legs will be short so then we do we get into that short pant leg by using catheters and wires confirm we're in that graft and then finish it by overlapping another graft. so it's mm-hmm. basically putting a, a pant in the aorta kind of a fabric pant so with okay. a proximal seal below the kidney arteries and a distal seal in the common iliac arteries mm-hmm
2: so yeah i I really like that way of explaining it i I know that'll make it easy for our listeners to understand so as as you do this what are what are the things you're the most worried about you mentioned the integrity of where you're landing Mm -hmm. but um positioning specific uh, what are things that you so from a
0: technical standpoint you really have to study the preoperative ct angiogram Mm -hmm. okay you really want a good quality thin collimation ct angiogram to really identify other accessory renal vessels which is the lowest renal artery uh, you want to see is the inferior mesenteric artery open. You want to see what the length of the common iliacs are. You want to look at tortuosity. And then what I do is I figure out, because the aorta follows the spine, okay? Mm-hmm. So the infernal neck is kind of, you're going to do a cran- what's called a craniocaudal angulation of the tube to position it best. And you're going to go a little bit of what's called LAO, which is a little obliquity, because mm-hmm. the kidney artery doesn't come at 12 o'clock or, I mean, it doesn't come at 3 or 6 o'clock. Right. So because of the positioning you have to be aware of what angle that is so you can turn the image intensifier such that you're profiling it. And that's key is to nail that angulation craniocaudal and usually LAO to position the lowest renal artery so you can optimize your coverage of the healthy
2: neck. Yeah. Okay. So, you, you have the healthy neck, you, you uh, landed there, you mentioned the, you know, you have both uh, legs or, mm-hmm. the, you know, the pant legs basically. Um, so, so, once you have this in place, once it's in place, mm-hmm. w- what, are, what are some things, I, I know previously we've talked about how there needs to be a proper overlap as mm-hmm. you had in that second leg. What happens if there isn't?
0: So, if you don't have adequate overlap, you get leaks. So you really you want to you put if if I don't have adequate overlap I will put another stent to overlap it. So you have to make sure you want to avoid what's called type one or type three leaks, which is type one is at the top of the graft, uh, type one B is at the bottom of the graft, and type three are between the pieces of the graft. Mm-hmm. So you want to have adequate overlap because we're not doing open surgery where they would suture the graft into the aorta we're expecting these little barbs or the graft itself to kind of seal. And if you get to that point where um,
1: you might not have realized during the procedure, but then afterwards there seems to be an endoleak, um well, what do you do to manage that with the patients?
0: Yeah, so if I have a type one or type three endoleak on the table, we'll do adjunctive measures. So if I'm seeing a leak at the infernal neck, I'll put a redilate the balloon uh, to, with a more uh, hefty balloon. Or I'll put a uh, staples, so you can actually do what's called endo-anchors and staple the neck of the graft. Or I will sometimes snorkel, which is moving that, um, that seal zone a little higher. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's different kind of adjunctive maneuvers we can do at the proximal and distal neck. And sometimes I'll put in a what's called a giant palm stent, which is a big balloon expandable stent, to get more uh, radial force integrity. Uh, below the renal arteries mm-hmm. so there's a lot of things you can do so each each case is a little bit different
2: definitely. yeah there's definitely a lot it, I, I've, I've realized there's a lot of uh technical difficulties that can happen and you have to have a lot of expertise uh it seems like as well w- one thing you mentioned as we were starting this is that uh generally you know in the past there's been the infrarenal uh endografts mm-hmm. but now can you explain what a fevar is and sure. why, why we would use fenestrated grafts
0: yeah so uh Fivar is a fenestrated endovascular endosome repair. And what that basically is, you make holes or scallops for the renals and visceral vessels. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is, again, you want to seal and help the aorta. Because as I follow patients 5, 10, even 15 years, as our medical therapy gets better, we're starting to see degeneration of the, na- of the aorta. Mm-hmm. So that's a natural progression of these poor patients. They have, a, they have an enzymatic process that's breaking down their aortic wall. Uh, and so we want to land a healthy zone. So and these patients have short necks, and the uh, instructions for use for the current fenestrated endovascular aneurysm repair graft that we have is 4 millimeters. So you need just 4 millimeters. Now, there are off-label utilizations of the graft. Um, there's also modifications modifications of the graft. And in Europe, they have you know, branched in for vessel fin options. But the bottom line is, again, your goal is to seal in healthy aorta, which is parallel, not... Too big, not too anor- not too dilated, uh, not thrombus laden, and not calcified.
1: And for like the grafts that you use, um, when you like measure it preoperatively,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, do the grafts come in different sizes, or oh, yeah. is it you that have to um, kind of measure it out? So for the
0: fenestrated, they actually custom make the graft. There's yeah. certain things you it's identify: it. what height the celiac and superior mesenteric artery are, what um, what angle they are on a clock position of the aorta. And also the renal arteries as well. So it could be usually the celiac S M A anywhere between 12 and 12:30 uh, on the clock position, and the kidney arteries are between three or three o'clock or two o'clock on the left, and um, around nine o'clock or ten o'clock on the right. So you're measuring it out, you're sizing what's the distance from the middle of the celiac is to the supermesenteric artery to the middle of the renal to the S M A, etc. So you're doing all those measurements, and there you send it to the company, and there's people who actually make that graph for you. Okay. There are, but the majority of the infernal neck repairs, which is standard endovascular aneurysm repair, there's varying sizes of grafts um, for the neck, proximal neck, and the iliacs, okay? and lengths as well, varying diameters and varying lengths. And so you measure the uh, aneurysm, you size it, and using kind of 3D reconstruction software, and most of it's planning, okay? Once you figure all that out, and then you can see obliquities, and then it's just kind of a procedure aspect. Yeah. So, and then I submit to the company, like, this is what graft I want, and this is the legs I want, and you go.
2: Yeah. One thing we didn't talk about is those ili- those legs that go into the iliacs. How far do you want those to go?
0: Good question. So you want to optimize your coverage, and, and so usually you usually try to go all the way to the hypogastric, mm-hmm. just above the hypogastric origin.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: And um, besides like the renal vessels, are there any other vessels that you're worried about infrarenally that might be coming off the aorta? So the inferior
0: mesenteric artery may be um, patent um, as well as the lumbars and those can eventually potentially to end leaks. So you just have to be cognizant of it. I, don't, I personally don't try to preoperatively embolize them. Uh, I know some people do if the inferior mesenteric artery is say five millimeters. They may go out and do that, but I don't personally do that. So I tend to just kind of treat it, but you just have to be aware of that. Now, if you have, you always have to think of the flow. If the inferior mesenteric artery is really large, make sure the superior mesenteric artery is not blocked. Meaning, if there's a stenosis SMA, superior mesenteric artery that's supplying most of the bowel supply, and you take out the inferior mesenteric artery and thrombose it, now you're going to cause mesenteric ischemia and in, in, in infarct. So I would revascularize the superior mesenteric artery first and then do the EVAR. Mm-hmm. So that's an important concept.
2: Yeah. I, I know, well, a lot of our listeners, when they hear, oh, you're you're blocking off the IMA, you know, that, mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of them are like, how can you do that and have the bowel survive? Mm-hmm. But but that collateral circulation in a so good quicker. SMA mm-hmm. is enough to keep the bowel alive. And
0: a lot of times there's thrombus uh, around where the inferior mesenteric artery is. Mm-hmm. So it's usually not even, the ostium is usually not patent on a lot of the uh, aneurysms.
2: Is that just because of the degenerative uh, nature of the aneurysm and the flow being being,
0: yeah, uh, poor. it's probably not like a laminar flow, yeah. so the turbulence and eddy, I, I, I think, would possibly be causing some of that thrombus mm-hmm. formation.
2: It's interesting. And
1: I think for like a lot of our listeners, they probably kind of want to know why this disease process tends to happen like with the abdominal aorta a lot more often than the thoracic aorta. Um, so I was wondering if you could kind of go over your thoughts on that.
0: So we do. We are seeing more and more thoracic aortic uh, degeneration and aneurysmal disease, but there's often dissections as, as well. So I don't really fully understand why it happens in one space or another. Some people think it's the uh, how much vessel there is in certain areas. Some people think it's the branch vessels will be kind of sumping some of the blood, mm-hmm. so that super uh, uh, renal component won't be as impacted, and whereas the uh flow dynamics and. You know, or is down to the iliacs and it's and a little bit more high resistance bed perhaps. So I, I would just be speculating. I don't really fully understand why the, the degenerate process happens at the infarenal component more so than the, the thoracic component or this paravisceral or pararenal component.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting so uh in the in the follow-up care of these patients Mm -hmm. i I know you know as i rotated with you i i know how long you follow Mm -hmm. up with these patients but i know our listeners are probably thinking, okay what happens after yeah
0: so usually i um so we we do again with local anesthesia um sedation with our nurses our ir nurses and then we after we close the incision sites we usually give them two grams of anenceph or or some type of uh, prophylactic uh, and redose every three hours uh, we send them to the recovery area, pack you for about four hours, and then we usually send them to like an ops unit, so med surge ops. will admit them to that, or or if i I'm worried, I'll put them to telemetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we rarely ever put them in the intensive care unit these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, over even our fenestrateds, we send to med surge observation or or med surge telemetry, and it's usually, they're usually discharged the next morning. Mm-hmm. So we'll have them eating, um, you know, pretty soon after the procedure, because mm-hmm. we've given them very little sedation.
2: That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And so, then, you know, moving into the future with those patients, um, I, I know how you feel about clinic and how important it is. How, how often are you seeing these patients? So,
0: yeah, so I usually do a post operative check within one or two weeks to check the groin site, make sure they're doing okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, they, some of them will have what's called post implantation syndrome, where they feel a little bit malaise. They may have, um, you know, some low grade fevers, et cetera. So, you just kind of guide them through that process, especially if their aneurysm, saccus, or embossing. Mm-hmm. These are things that we may see. Okay, Um, And then I just make sure their incision sites are okay, make sure there's no signs of infection, and then I order the follow-up CAT scan, usually about a month after the intervention. And then uh, I see them then, go over the results, again, make sure their LDL is okay, if they're A1C, check, check all those things. Uh, so I'm keeping track of that, the blood pressure, et cetera. And if they're smoking, I certainly am, every time I see them, I'm telling them to stop smoking and uh, send them to smoking classes, et cetera. So those are all part of the process, and I get the family involved in that discussion. After one month, uh, I will do, usually, is if there's CTs not showing any endoleak or anything, I'll go between six months and one year and follow. But I usually get them back in six months, see them, one year, see them, and then yearly. If there's a leak and the sac is growing, yeah. Uh, if the, by five millimeters, I'm likely going to intervene. So
2: mm-hmm. let's talk about that. What mm-hmm. do you, you want to ask a question
1: about? Yeah. So when you uh, when a patient starts having a leak, do you find that they often have symptoms, or does it tend to be asymptomatic and you catch it on uh, the
0: post-operative screening? Yeah, most of the time, they're for type two leaks. They're asymptomatic. Okay. Occasionally, for a type one, they'll have some back pain or, or something that's concerning. Then I'm bringing them in emergently and getting it repaired. Okay. So that's kind of how. Uh, in general, the way the way I proceed, but most of them are asymptomatic, so again, it's a growth of the aneurysm sac with a likely type two endoleak that I'll go intervene on. Uh, about five millimeter growth is what I use.
1: And uh, when you go into re-intervention, like what what do you do differently?
0: Yeah, so if it's a type, I studied CTA and looked or or MRA with time resolved imaging or we've done a little bit of contrast ultrasound. So whatever modality to figure out where the leak is coming from, preoperatively, and then I target those vessels. So if it's a type two endoleak, leak, I'm usually going, getting potentially bilateral groin axis and going into the internal iliac, into the ilio-lumbar to lumbar collateral. Or I'm going through the superior mesoteric arcorelan or marginal artery drum and into the eye, inferior mesenteric artery to the sac and using a combination of coils and liquid embolic to kind of shut down the leak. Or directly stick this aneurysm sac under image guidance using CT usually, and uh, put the uh, the agent through the coils or onyx directly into the uh, or coils or liquid embolic directly into the aneurysm sac. Wow.
2: Okay. Wow. So that, that's that's also so, so incredible. The fact you can take mm-hmm. a needle mm-hmm. and directly access that sac. What do you find works better, the liquid or the solid, uh, the, or the coils, or uh, yeah, it just depends? Yeah,
0: it's I find endoleaks type two endoleaks, and you know this. I think it's a very mixed. Bag, I'm actually presenting this afternoon about type 2 endoleaks, and so uh, at the ICED meeting, so uh, stay tuned. But I find it a, a little bit more complex than uh, when to treat. Is it a little bit of type 1A that's hard to identify or um, is it a combination of type 1A or type that became that led to a type 2 or a type 2 that led to a type 1? It's it's a bit more complex. Mm-hmm. So I think number one is trying to figure it out, taking good diagnostic imaging to guide you in the good aerotography, either using carbon dioxide or contrast, and there's kind of a whole algorithm that I use by axis, but balloons identify is it above or below. So really, problem solve first. And once you problem solve, uh, I make sure that I have good seal up high at the neck of the aorta, and below the kidneys, and a good seal at the iliacs. And then I proceed to doing the endoleak intervention, type two endoleak intervention. Yeah.
2: Okay. So one thing that I know a lot of our listeners think about, since a lot of our listeners are trainees is uh, what role are are your residents or or the fellows playing in these cases? How how are they helping and and how are they learning from you?
0: Sure. So my residents, you know, the integrated residents, they go to clinic. They have a half-day clinic a week. Mm -hmm. So some of them are already starting to follow their own aneurysms. So they're seeing them. They're guiding them on smoking cessation. They're making sure they're on uh, statins with the LDL goal less than 70. Blood pressure is controlled. And they're ordering sequential imaging, right? So we have kind of a follow-up about aneurysm. Uh, algorithm for these patients right so then that's their first step and then they're also sizing the aneurysms so i have them the integrated residents kind of look at the cta and give me an idea of using this graft or this graft what would you use mm-hmm. and what obliquities and whatnot so they're learning during our weekly conference i'll have them do that as homework almost yeah. so they're thinking about that throughout okay and that's kind of the the, the kind of the algorithm that we have and then they're in their interventions you know so they're getting into you know these complex aortic repairs early on mm-hmm. I don't have them wait till they're five or six I have them, you know see these things early so they can wrap their head around it because yeah. the way I think of it is this there's if you can figure out a 30-step procedure right like a complex fenestrated mm-hmm. a four-step procedure like a g-tube won't be that challenging in yeah. the sense that yeah. when you see you know sheets in each renal and the SMA and percutaneous axis both groins and large four sheets well, a four-step where, you know, G two from a mental standpoint, will be a lot easier to um, conceive. I know a lot of people have a different philosophy, like, okay, let's just get basic and go forward. But I think if you jump into this complexity and you can wrap your head around it, and mm-hmm. including advanced imaging, then those easier those other procedures, in my experience, have been easier for them to kind of grab a hold of.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I like, too, the, the perspective you take in, in the planning. Like you said, mm-hmm. a lot of this is planning, mm-hmm. and you sort of give these your trainees opportunities step-by-step step in the planning process mm-hmm. so then when these happen they, they know how it's planned yeah. they know the steps it's not like you're saying hey tomorrow read up on this and be ready for 30 steps of a, right. a fenestrated um, right. endograph." Yeah. so
0: exactly so i give them some reading assignments like hey these are some good articles from and, and to review and then i ask them to kind of generate like write a step-by-step what you're going to do yeah so by doing that they give me that and i correct it and then we go through the procedure yeah mm-hmm. so that that's been helpful that's awesome. It makes them think about the procedure, go through the steps so that the day of, it's just not like they're winging it. They're like, okay, I saw that. And they pick up more. They get more from the procedure by doing that.
2: Definitely.
0: From a technical standpoint. And then they follow, you know, they write the post-op orders and uh, the discharge, etc. So they kind of yeah. get that whole thing. Right. Um now if we were doing a fenestrated with cover scents in the visceral vessels or renals we often put them on plavix as well so we'll plavix load them and uh, get them that way
2: so beyond the ir trainees who else is in the room is are you always working in concert with vascular surgeons most of the know, time yeah. yeah most of the
0: time so we have a, uh, a relationship with our vascular surgeons i mean they're Great uh, endovascular skilled individuals. So we we have a you know comp, or vascular conference where our residents, the surgical residents and the vascular surgeons from a couple of departments or a couple of hospitals come together and we talk about cases. And so I will present our patients and they'll present their patients. We kind of share ideas, mm-hmm. and so I think it's uh, it's valuable. So. Um, and we tend to work we're in the clinic together and work very closely with them.
1: So, um, you know, coming from a residency and fellowship where you didn't, weren't able to do uh, too much aortic work, how did you get involved with this uh, when you took your first full-time job and kind of build
0: the practice that you have today? So um, yeah, so that's a good question. So I really looked, uh, I was always interested in aortic disease uh, for a reason. I just liked the penetrating ulcers and intramural hematomas and dissections. I found them very fascinating and very mercurial and volatile and unpredictable. Um, and even at that time, when I was a resident, it was all kind of new and tricky to kind of the transformation from. Inf- an intramural hematoma to dissection, so I always had an interest in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a handful of programs that were doing it, like the myocardial vascular Institute, but they only have a certain number of fellowship spots. Yeah. So uh, now there seems to be like Medical College of Wisconsin, Rush. There's several other places that are now contributing training, but at the time there's only a handful of places. So because of that, um, well, I'd go to kind of you know vascular surgery type of conferences and kind of see what they were doing, read the vascular surgery literature. They, uh, look at the people like the Vasquez group and what they were doing, and go visit them so those are all ways that I kind of um, acquired more knowledge about uh, aortic disease and then yeah I you know I would meet and talk with the UVA like I said the UVA group or the sean serenes of the world who were doing them at, you know and whatnot so there was that group and we would share ideas
2: that's
0: mm-hmm. awesome yeah and Gupta at Colorado was doing them so like you know I would talk to these individuals and pick their brain on mm-hmm. how they were approaching these things and learn yeah
2: mm-hmm. and so as you now have been training mm-hmm. uh, intervention radiologists uh, have you seen a lot of them go into practice and start doing this as well
0: yeah so so we, we're just kind of starting our integrated residency program and that is you know that'll be the goal but they, they have gone out and they're doing peripheral vascular disease and uh, if they go to a smaller hospitals or whatnot they have the opportunity to do aortic work you know? yeah so we'll see in the next 5-10 years as we kind of are new to this whole ESIR and an integrated training paradigm. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: yeah, because, you know, there's a lot of the, the training programs don't do aorta still, right. but even for those that do, how often in practice should you be doing, you know, these FIVARs and what and, and, uh, not to be able to be proficient and also, you know, credentialing all that sort of thing?
0: Sure. So I think uh, standard inferior aortic aneurysm everyone's kind of doing. Um, you know, most hospitals, uh, two, three hundred bed hospitals, are probably doing it. But you're right; as you get into more complexity with trade or you know any of these things, then you need a good, uh, good experience, a good team to do that. So those will be often referred to like a more of a tertiary center yeah. in general. Mm-hmm. But you, if you, if you have an interest and passion, you should certainly pursue it. As long as you you know QA yourself and be honest about you know what you're doing and learn.
2: Yeah. And speaking of learning, I'm sure you know we're here at ISAT yeah. and there's those live cases. Over the years, as the ISAT education program, you know, and all the live cases helped you and, and sure. learning how to do this.
0: It's definitely helped me, and it's also helped my trainees. I've seen my one of my colleagues who was a resident, one of our residents, and he, after coming to this meeting, his. Foundational knowledge of uh, of interventional improved dramatically. And his performance in the interventional suites had actually improved after seeing all these live cases. So I thought that was kind of intriguing that this one meeting was able to kind of get him moving forward in that fashion. So I do, and you know, I think certainly from my standpoint, what I really enjoy not only is the live cases and kind of discussion with these expert panels of vascular surgeons and interventional cardiologists and IRs, but I also really like the vascular medicine component that's yes, you know yeah. the essential so i come here really to kind of get grab, grab that where there's so much new stuff coming on whether the pcsk 9 inhibitors the compass trial with the low dose river roxaban voyager's ongoing so i think that's uh, another exciting thing and what i also like is the true passion for to battle these diseases you know like uh, this whole seal fighter movement that's going on uh, yeah. is pretty exciting i know you've mm-hmm. talked to sippy and don and Kumar Matasari and others, you know, and you know, Mike Watts and whatnot. And that's a pretty exciting uh, arena, and that's, you know, emphasizes this meeting as well. But I, I think um, as we, all the disciplines, kind of meld together in this space, it's very exciting because the, the movement enables everyone to take better care of their patients, whether it be vascular surgeon cardiology or interventional radiology. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
2: definitely. So as, you know, this training changes, as, as the IRDR pathway becomes more common, do you see more programs doing aortic work, or do you feel like aortic work will stay in certain, certain areas?
0: So I think, uh, so this is an interesting question. I think the trainees should be educated and, and in on this because I think it adds a lot of, of skill set and knowledge base, you know, that it would be valuable. And also, I think it's important to get, you know, people to smaller, uh, smaller hospitals in rural areas where this disease is going to be there, and there may not have a you know any vascular specialist, cardiologist, the cardiologists, the vascular surgeons, and the VIR maybe the person,
2: yeah.
0: uh, he or she may be the one that's doing these or need to take care of these patients. So I do think there is a you know as uh, someone had said yesterday, there's a growing obesity and diabetes and aging population of 65 year old and uh, older, and so this is just one of those things that is important from a skill set standpoint, and the technical you know devices there's large board seats and the preclose technique and the stiff wires and the molding balloons and the you know the, uh, the structural development has uh, allows you to also think outside the box and use it elsewhere hmm. so in venous applications or even portal venous applications or you know you know in the pulmonary circulation center so i think it's important just to have that kind of skill set
2: yeah yeah so can you can you build on that what do you so what where have you seen this used in other places?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just takes. Even if you're doing venous reconstruction, sometimes you want to have familiarity with the endografts. If you have a frank mm-hmm. rupture and you're reconstructing the IVC, um, I think you know the ability to snorkel things and just kind of thinking along those dynamics. The Lundor, you know, there's stiff, stiff wires, the molding balloons that you know the the compliant balloons that you include the IVC with. Those are all part of the standard you know set of an aortic. Um, interventionalist yeah. so to have that in your skill set is helpful if you have a complex tips and you can't get the sheets down you have this stiff lunderquist that you may historically not have so all these things kind of help you Absolutely. and there's yeah. and when you're doing fenestrated there's tricks to get into the, the hole and there's tricks to get the sheets in same thing so there's overlapping techniques that you can yeah, pick definitely. up buddy wires et cetera.
2: Yeah, I know a a lot of the training programs that don't, that the the interventional radiologists aren't doing aortic work or peripheral vascular work, uh, at those places you you rotate on vascular surgery. Mm -hmm. So for those residents who might be in a program like that, who will be rotating on vascular surgery, do you think while working with the vascular surgeons, they can gain those skills to go out and practice in that way?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think they should have adequate uh, time and uh, and not only in the procedural area, but more importantly in the clinic area. Yes. Yeah. So when I was a resident, I didn't even care, I didn't go to the uh, OR, OR or the uh, suite to do that. I just went to the clinic and saw you know patients with vascular disease. Mm-hmm. And um, you know again, Tom McNamara, my you know my my uh, my attending as fellow, he was a clinician physician for peripheral vascular disease. So he you know he evaluated and managed patients with carotid disease and renal artery disease and you know and peripheral arterial disease and wounds. Yeah. So that I think is the most important thing. Yeah. The technical mm-hmm. stuff is, will come you know with uh, you know without that much effort, you know, it's yeah. in your skill set. But the clinical thing is what you need to work on. And so as we talk about integration of training, I think that's where you know we really need to kind of modify even what we have now. So I th- I personally think what they were doing at UVA with the clinical pathway was superior to what we're doing right now with the integrated because I think 3 months of intervention in 3 years is not enough to be adequately trained as a clinician so i think uh, what we're doing is we're having that kind of in you know i think fourth year it starts as a fourth year medical student and we've talked about this right i think fourth year you need to have a couple of ir ways at least two one and maybe at your home institute a couple weeks of diagnostics a vascular surgery rotation a icu rotation is critical perhaps a cardiology consoles and maybe surgical sub-i and that's where it starts your foundation then your internship really should be surgery right and a good surgery program and uh we're working on identifying those programs so that will give you some clinic time uh consults and or time not just floor work but a combination of those features so you'll be really ready to go then during that internship what well, we're doing it and we're integrating it so if you're in thoracic surgery i actually I expect you to know the, broncho, you know, the thoracic anatomy, mm-hmm. bronchopulmonary segments and and staging of lung cancer and the role of mediastinoscopy or ebus or uh, biopsy etc so are we're going to give you some kind of recommendations which you should come out how to manage a chest tube empyema hemothorax etc so each rotation is going to have certain criteria when you're on vascular rutherford for critical limb ischemia and acute limb ischemia there are going to be things that we you know want you to know in vascular anatomy and asymptomatic, symptomatic carotid disease and, and interpretation of uh, duplexes. So each rotation during surgical internship, there'll be implications of not only uh, radiologic anatomy, and, but also kind of the pathophysiology and the clinical side. Mm-hmm. So we're structuring even that intern year where you're learning radiologic concepts and interventional concepts even then. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: then intern, or PGY2 year, we expect you to do kind of IR weekend call so at least once a month, where you're doing, you've figured out your templates, you're doing consults, you're seeing patients. Also, you're doing, um, you know, starting the procedure area, you understanding the fluoroscopy, you're understanding all these things. And then you, at the end of the year, you're going to do two months of kind of back-to-back interventional. So not a month and then six months gap, because I've seen people uh, take, you know, two steps forward and take one step back. Here, you're yes. just going consistently forward. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. the beauty of going multi-month uh, in, in, contigu- in a contiguity. Um, then they're going to do MICU or, uh, for a couple of weeks in MICU. So yeah. like about 80 hours is what we're advocating for the PGY-2. PGY-3 year, again, two months of interventional and a, and a month of uh, CCU at our place. And then PGY-4 year, in the very beginning, because now you've got to really focus on core, mm-hmm. PGY-4 year, at the very beginning, a month of IR, a month of neuro-IR. Mm-hmm. So now you've got a good chunk of uh, almost a five-month block of IR, and neuro-IR, and, 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 and ICU medicine, and now you're just going to focus on boards, mm-hmm. right? And the other thing that's really important is a half-day clinic a week. So we have incorporated PGY-2 through 6, half-day of continuity of clinic for the residents. So mm-hmm. no matter no what rotation, what no what awesome. what like my resident's on CCU, as a PGY-3, he still comes to clinic on Monday morning. Mm-hmm. And, and the other uh, PGY-4 resident has Friday afternoon clinic, yeah. whether you have MAMO or whatever, it, it doesn't matter. So he's developing that kind of continuity care. That's
2: great. That's good. What yeah. about those uh, conferences you mentioned earlier? Sure. Is that, is that something that helps... When they're off service, yeah. you know, like you were mentioning, working on planning endographs or mm-hmm. vascular or even uh, liver conference liver yeah. as well.
0: Yeah, so yeah, so, I, so they our trainees go to about uh, in the morning, no matter what rotation, they'll go to conference, uh, unless they're post-call. And so they'll go to a vascular conference, kind of multi-trainer vascular conference Tuesday mornings. Uh, Wednesdays, two, PGY 2 through 6, they'll go to a dedicated IR conference on Wednesday and Fridays. And Thursday is general uh, IR conference for all the residents. Mm-hmm. So Tuesday went Tuesday vascular conference for all the residents. I mean for the integrated residents and in ESIR. Wednesday and Friday are dedicated just to integrating ESIR and students. And during that time, we'll do you know we'll kind of discuss yeah. some of these technical things, best cases, uh, and then we'll also do kind of um, uh, we'll do didactics and journal club. And journal clubs are really we're going over clinical trials, yeah. whether it be the primary prevention aspirin the negative trials for that, mm-hmm. or I'm not sure which ones you were there for, but yeah. we'll also do the HEC chemo trials like Celestial mm-hmm. and Resource and look at Regorafinib and Kepsatinib and, levatinib and you and know, Serafinib, Pan-Asian, Asia-Pacific trial and the SHARP trial, et cetera. So we go through all those, so then they really have that down. Mm-hmm. We'll sometimes we'll go over the American Association Study of Liver Disease and the management of ascites or portal hypertension. We'll go over those kind of guidelines as, mm-hmm. and as part of the training. Okay. So and those are important because then you really get a foundation of understanding. Do you find as
1: like they get more years uh, with the integrated residency and most places start to have like a full complement of integrated residents that you'll kinda see more instead of like all diagnostic the first couple of years and all IR the last two years to kinda see it more?
0: mixed throughout the curriculum. Yeah, I, that's my hope. Um, that's, I hope that we do see more of that. Now, the challenge is getting all that uh, anatomy and pathology that radiology requires uh, down in three years, including the physics, right? So yeah. how do you do that? And that's why I think that during the intern year, if you're on surgery, you really got to hone down that anatomy, you yeah. know, the uh, the chest, ab, and pelvis. You know, you have to get that down, I think, and then the vascular anatomy. Mm-hmm. So at least that amount you should have down before you finish, and on every you know, uh, in every surgical rotation, you should be going down to the imaging department and review the scans on your own patients and start looking at it. And surgeons are pretty good at looking at their own imaging, so you should see how they look at things. So I think that'll help. But yes, I think, um, I I hope to see true integration.
2: Sort of looking into the future as well, specifically of of aortic interventions. Here at ISET, we've seen a lot of interesting new technologies, Mm -hmm. you know, like that fiber optic technology that uh, Dr. Katzen showed uh, yesterday. What what do you see changing or what do you think will change in the next 30 years with aortic interventions or even the next 10 or 20?
0: So I, I'm, I'm hoping that we get some of these uh, abilities to repair thoric abdominal aneurysms with the branched or fenestrated devices. I'm hoping that we get a better understanding of what graft is going to work in a type B dissection to re- remodel it without having uh, retrograde dissections without having paralysis mm-hmm. and preventing kind of and, and treatment not only of acute dissections with uh, with complications of malperfusion, but also acute dissections that we follow for five ten years and the false lumen starts to get big. So I'm hoping that we remodel and change the natural history of these patients. I'm hoping that um, that um, we prevent these things from happening in the first place. So uh, there are some studies looking at Europe and some countries where the smoking has dramatically been reduced that the aneurysm prevalence is markedly reduced as well. Uh-huh. So that's really my ultimate hope. You know, Can yeah. we prevent this disease from happening with either pharmacologic adjuncts or just really just prevent yeah. stopping smoking? Yeah. And I think that's our primary role is to stop smoking.
2: Yeah, it's true. And so looking into the future of, of trainees, mm-hmm. for our trainees listening today, what advice would you give for those that say, you know what, I really think aortic disease is something I would like to be involved in, in treating? Uh, What what advice would you give to them? You know, no matter where they end up, matching eventually or sure.
0: That's a great question. So yeah, so identify the programs that are doing it um, one, and then try to go there. But yeah, there's limited spaces. Two is when you get there, uh, you're if you're you're combined integrated surgical program, and you're on the vascular surgery and you showcase interest and kind of ask to participate more on that rotation and get involved and just kind of you know showcase your past disease mm-hmm. and you know i think that will you know guide you through that process or do away rotations of places that are doing it yeah you know and learn it right go hey I, we're not getting it here i want to go to this community facility that's doing it nearby mm-hmm. or i want to go to a center that i can learn about it whether it be in the states or in canada or or abroad mm-hmm. europe or asia that's yeah. what i would recommend
2: Yeah, Yeah, yesterday when we were interviewing Dr. Katzen, he mentioned that's something that he did, because he heard of procedures being done like lung biopsies that weren't being done in the United States. And so funny enough, he was able to get out of what is now AIRP. And instead, he went to London and, and learned how to yeah. do lung biopsies uh, <laughs> at, that, at that time. So, yeah, I, you know, I think that initiative that he showed and that you've shown yeah. is something that hopefully our listeners will show as well one day.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what's going to yeah. propel the field forward, right? So we have very bright students that are coming to the field. It's an exciting time where we're kind of managing head-to-toe conditions, and that's why I kind of personally enjoy this specialty is because, we're, you know, I get to treat cancer patients, I get to treat... Uh, vascular patients and kind of the end organ diseases, and kind of see them whole, holistically. But at the same time, I think our trainees need to um, be trained in an integrated fashion to comprehensively manage diseases and comprehensively manage the patient, and also a broad spectrum of disease. Right now, what I think is the challenge is most of the places are transplant centers and trauma centers, so they're learning kind of hepatobiliary work, portal hypertension work, and mm-hmm. liver-directed therapy work, but they're not learning the other spectrums of disease, which if you go to 200-bed hospital, or 300 non-transplant hospital, or non-cancer center hospital, you're not likely to thrive or succeed. Yeah. So I think, you know, these are the things that we have to uh, educate our trainees about. So I send my residents to an office-based lab that one of my former residents is at, uh, who uh, he's, uh, you know, so he can they can see what it takes to build an office-based lab and he's doing dialysis work and peripheral disease work there. And so they can learn from him to how to set it up.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, like you mentioned before with this aging population, the silver tsunamis, I remember someone called it that yesterday, you know, the, the, the populations that need the most help from interventional radiology are, are needing procedures or management. That's not always done in every facility. So I think your point of showing initiative, working with other specialties to learn those skills is important.
0: I agree,
1: and definitely I agree. And and like being at a conference like said you kind of get to see that firsthand. Uh, people across specialties working together
0: to help prevent uh, these diseases. Yeah, no, I, I mean I, I was lucky enough to attend this as a fellow, and it was kind of was a it was an eye opening uh, for me because I was never taught kind of the um, the evidence based approach during my radiologic training, and then coming here and hearing you know the uh, cats in the world, the Benedittis, the Gary Ansel's, and all the kind of vascular specialists of various disciplines from neurosurgery to uh, um, vascular surgery to vascular medicine to cardiology and looking at high-quality data sets and how they broke it down really helped me um, understand where we need to go, especially in interventional radiology, Mm -hmm. and looked at our own kind of inherent weaknesses and that we need to start training our trainees to look at that, multi-center, randomized control trials not really retrospective trials, and if we don't have the data, we have to admit that we don't have the data, and we need to, as a society, standardize and work together and learn from how cardiologists have done it, vascular surgeons have done it, uh, oncologists have done it, to gather data so we can, as scientists, guide and counsel our patients appropriately.
2: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I think that's a great point, and I think you know that's why a place like I said is incredible. I know Jag and I have both said that it's Mm -hmm. a great place to be. We highly recommend all of our listeners to, to come one day. But um, any other final parting words for our listeners, Dr. Vakicher?
0: No, I mean I, I think it's an exciting time for interventional uh, the specialty itself uh, as far as training goes. Uh, you got to fight for your right to be trained right. You know uh, the interventions may not all be practicing in the, you know a fashion of a comprehensive management of the patients, but you should really strive to do that. You should think about taking uh, being a guidance counselor. That's your primary role. Okay. You may forget it during those diagnostic years, but it's the most important thing you can do: is g- be guiding that patient and counseling them through their illness. And your goal is to keep them, to try to make them ha- healthy and happy, right? So, whatever you can do to achieve that, and think of that patient not as a 70-year-old with an abdominal aortic aneurysm. Think about him as a 70-year-old who retired uh, AP history teacher who lives in you know Covina, who's got Two dogs, uh, a wife that he's been married to for forty years, three kids—two boys and one girl—and five grandkids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And his hobby is to play tennis. Yeah. And once you look at it that way, and once you introduce that patient to your whole staff that way,
2: mm-hmm. it
0: goes from an endovascular interventional repair to fi- to helping this person yeah,
2: you're get uh, healthy. So you're helping John Doe. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah
0: you're helping yeah. this individual get better, yeah. right? So that should be kind of your philosophy and goal moving forward.
2: Yeah. so it's going from the doctor's doctor to the mm-hmm. patient's doctor
0: yeah as I've said before I don't want to be the doctor's doctor I want to be the patient's doctor Absolutely. Here, yeah.
2: yeah. Well, we appreciate you coming on the podcast today no it was my thank pleasure so it, was, it was
0: definitely an honor thank you Thank you both.
2: That's it for this episode.
0: Please keep an eye out
1: for our upcoming episodes this season, where we'll be discussing research in IR, surviving fourth year as an IR applicant, palliative IR, and more.
2: If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you.
1: If you're practicing IR, who'd like to get involved with the podcast, please contact us at our email address, IR, all one word, at gmail.com.
2: You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. And if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast apps. See you next time.